0: I'm Laura Odada with the Cato Institute, and today we're going to be talking about trade issues and especially China. And while I neglected to pick up a copy of Dan's latest paper, he has a recent paper on the topic, and if you didn't get a copy in the front, feel free to talk to us afterwards to get a copy. Our first speaker today will be Dan Eikenson. He's Cato's director of the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies, and among his focuses are WTO disputes, regional trade agreements, U.S.-China trade issues, and steel and textile trade policies. Thanks, Allison. This is Dan's new paper, for any of you that didn't see it out front. <laughs> Prior to joining Cato, Dan was the director of international trade planning for an international accounting and business advisory firm, and he also worked at trade policy, on trade policy at several international trade law practices in D.C. Following Dan will be Erin Ennis, who's the vice president of the U.S.-China Business Council. Her responsibilities there include government affairs and advocacy work, as well as leading a coalition of trade associations on issues of interest to companies doing business in China. Prior to joining the council, she worked at an international consulting firm and was also a legislative aide to former U.S. Senator John Brown. And with that, I will turn things over to Dan.
1: Thank you, Laura. And thank you to Aaron for joining us uh, today. And, and thank you to the audience for coming to lend us your ears in, in, ex- in exchange for sandwiches and chips. Uh, some, some call that a bribe, but I... I like to consider it mutually beneficial trade. Speaking of trade, uh, that, that's where I focus most of my work at, at Cato. Uh, our mission at Cato in the Trade Center is to educate policymakers and the public and the business community uh, about the benefits of free trade and the costs of protectionism. Now, one might think that job is getting easier. After all, we, we do live in a globalized economy uh, where more and more U.S. jobs uh, depend on transnational collaboration in, uh, in the form of integrated supply chains, uh, transnational uh, investment patterns. Um, as I'd like to put it, the factory floor has broken through its walls and now spans oceans and borders. Uh, it's no longer apt, in my opinion, to characterize international trade as a, as a competition between us and them. After all, who are we and who are they? You know, 55% of the value of U.S. imports is raw materials, intermediate goods, capital equipment, the purchases of producers, not consumers. These U.S. producers depend on them, uh, or at least their bottom lines do. Nearly 6 million Americans work for foreign-owned companies in the United States. The largest steel producer in the United States, middle, is a majority Indian-owned company with headquarters in Europe. Uh, The largest German steel company, ThyssenKrupp, recently completed a nearly $4 billion investment in Mobile, Alabama, to produce steel to supply primarily the burgeoning uh, foreign transplant auto industry in the American South. And iconic General Motors, in whom we all have some ownership stake, uh, produces more cars in China now than it does uh, in the United States. And of course, you've heard about the supply chain that brings us Apple's products and other electronic uh, companies, high-tech gadgets and devices. Um, So that really speaks to the internationalization uh, of trade. Uh, On average, according to a study by the US International Trade Commission, about 50% of the value of imports from China is actually Chinese value. The other 50% is value added in other countries through, through their labor and components, Japan, United States, Brazil, Australia, Singapore. So it's just no longer accurate to characterize trade as our producers against their producers. Furthermore, most Americans enjoy uh, the fruits of international trade and globalization every day, uh, driving to work uh, in vehicles containing at least some foreign content, uh, using foreign-assembled or foreign-content-rich phones to communicate, to shop, to navigate, to learn, to conduct business from the golf course. Americans have extra disposable income because retailers like Walmart, uh, Best Buy, and Home Depot are able to pass on cost savings made possible by their own access uh, to thousands of global suppliers. Many Americans earn bigger paychecks on account of their company's growing sales to customers abroad. And many enjoy salaries and benefits provided by an employer who happens to be a foreign-owned company. Yet it has not really gotten easier. The job of uh, impressing upon people the benefits of trade has not gotten easier. Many Americans remain skeptical about trade. Most don't believe they've benefited from freer trade or that freer trade has been good for the US economy. Too many Americans are of the view that exports are our team's points, imports are the other team's points. The trade account is the scoreboard. We have a deficit, which means we're losing at trade. And we're losing at trade because our trade partners cheat. They cheat with impunity. And the biggest culprit, of course, is China. Uh, In this presidential election year, China bashing is polling well. It's certainly polling better than Congress's popularity. And with Congress's public approval ratings in the single digits, uh, the temptation of Washington policymakers to find scapegoats for their failures to achieve anything of substance with respect to the economy, uh, our burgeoning fiscal crisis, uh, remains alluring. Scapegoating is alluring. Americans are told that uh, U.S.-China relations are worsening, and they're worsening because of an increase in protectionist, treaty-violating, or otherwise illiberal Chinese policies that have destroyed U.S. manufacturing and the jobs that go with it, never mind the fact that U.S. manufacturing is thriving by uh, the most important metrics. The term trade war, which I've uh, been reluctant to use over the years because of its sort of self-perpetuating nature, is no longer taboo. The media have portrayed the United States as a victim uh, of myriad Chinese swindles, including currency manipulation, dumping, subsidization, intellectual property theft, forced technology transfer, industrial espionage, and other ad hoc impediments to U.S. investment and exports. Clearly, some of this is true. Uh, Certain Chinese policies have been provocative, discriminatory, protectionist, and, and in some cases, violative of the rules of trade, but there's, there's, there's a lot more to the story than that. Uh, US policies, politics, and, and attitudes have contributed importantly to rising bilateral tensions. Those who agitate for confrontation, uh, or a more strident policy tack at least, tend to couch their own narrow interests in this us versus them narrative, uh, as though we would all benefit from the protectionist policies they seek when, in reality, that protection is likely to claim many more victims than beneficiaries. Trade wars are never won. Uh, Instead, they claim victims indiscriminately and leave significant damage in their wake. Even if one were to conclude that China's list of offenses is collectively more egregious uh, than the U.S. list of offenses, the most sensible course of action is to avoid mutually destructive policies and to find ways to reduce frictions with China. It should not be surprising that the increasing number of commercial exchanges between the world's largest and second largest uh, economies produce frictions on occasion. But contrary to the rhetoric, uh, the the economic relationship uh, has not descended into this existential call to arms. Rather, both governments uh, are engaged in what I'd call a tactical trade war, uh, where most actions are legally defensible or plausibly justifiable uh, within the rules of trade. That is not to say that those actions uh, have been advisable uh, or that their consistency with international rules and domestic laws will ultimately withstand formal scrutiny. Indeed, many uh, have been ill-advised. But my point is that unlike the free-for-all that erupted in the 1930s, these trade skirmishes, I would characterize them as skirmishes, uh, have been prosecuted in a manner that speaks to mutual recognition of the primacy of, if not respect for, the rules-based system of trade. So I'm still reluctant to call this a trade war. Nevertheless, that doesn't mean there's no cause for concern. Protectionist actions, whether uh, part of a series of of events dubbed a trade war or whether within the rules or not, uh, aggrandize government. They reduce our freedoms. They increase the cost of living. They increase production costs for businesses. They reduce um, uh, employment, retard, and prevent uh, more efficient resource allocations. And they produce economic losses in both countries and often beyond. So these, these tend to be consequences that are ignored uh, by media pundits and politicians who like to hoist their flags and cast trade disputes in this terribly misleading, us-versus-them context. One can argue that bilateral economic frictions have been increasing for several years, but I think the year 2009 uh, brought about a change in the tenor in the relationship. The rhetoric in 2009 became more strident. Uh, Historically, minor tiffs became flashpoints, uh, and the public's angst became more palpable. So what was different about 2009, well, first, we were mired in a very deep recession here in the United States, and as we slowly emerged uh, at very slow growth, very high unemployment by by U.S. standards, and noticing that we were – our government was heavily in debt, and a lot of that debt was held by the Chinese, who were growing at a very rapid pace or still at near double-digit annualized growth rates. It caused policymakers, people here, to turn inward and ask, you know, where did we go wrong? Uh, maybe we've been too permissive of China's rise, and we should change course. The other, ta- the other take on that was, what has China done right? And maybe we need to emulate China's industrial policies. Uh, And that sentiment has been agitated by economic conditions and the perspectives that they bore. Secondly, the business community in China, which had for a long time advocated uh, against US policies that might frustrate their access to the Chinese market, started to air grievances uh, about proliferating Chinese protectionism and started to issue warnings about China's market liberalization saying, liberalization was evident through the early part of the last decade, and it sort of slowed down. Uh, The unveiling of a report, I think it was produced by the American Chamber of Commerce in China, uh, which documented rising protectionism in China and various Chinese industrial policies, inspired other changes and sentiments uh, here in the United States and within the multinational community. So it sort of shifted the balance of interests that shaped US China policy. We've always had this balancing of interest. You have import competing industries and unions on one side, the multinational community on the other, and then policymakers would sort of go down the middle and talk tough on China and not really do anything. But as the multinational companies started drifting in this direction, policy started to shift a little bit. So the third issue that that makes 2009 stand out is that that's when President Obama authorized the imposition of duties under Section 421 on imports of of tires from China. I think those three events that I just identified changed perceptions enough on both sides of the the Pacific to produce a more antagonistic atmosphere, uh, and has spawned a growing number of disputes that give the impression that this tit-for-tat trade war is in progress. Justifiably or not, uh, the president's decision to impose duties on imports of, of, of uh, of tires from China Uh, Crossed a line for the Chinese. Section 421 of the Trade Act of 1974 was added to the U.S. statute when China joined the WTO. Basically, China agreed to allow the United States to treat it differently. Um, If there were a surge in imports and that surge were creating injury, causing injury to an industry, the United States could impose duties for a period of up to three years. The problem. Uh, is that, well, it wasn't a problem at the time, Uh, the way it works is that the U.S. International Trade Commission evaluates whether or not there's been a surge in imports and whether the domestic industry is injured, and then will recommend to the president duties if they are fined affirmatively in in those cases. Under the Bush administration, the first administration, the George W. Bush administration, uh, the first administration to have this law, Uh, The ITC recommended four times that that he impose duties on various Chinese products under this law. But each time the president exercised his discretion to ignore the advice of the ITC, Uh, he found that it wouldn't be in the national economic interest to do so. So a precedent had been established and reinforced that presidential discretion will prevent uh, duties from being imposed. Well, in 2009, uh, the Steelworkers Union brought a case on tires It was President Obama's first and only bite at the 421 apple, and he decided to impose duties (coughs) for three years. So that, uh, I think, alarmed the Chinese to a certain extent, and I think the fact that the president referred to it as enforcing our our trade agreements uh, infuriated them. 421 is not about enforcement. 421 is about calling for a timeout saying, sorry, we, we, we've been overwhelmed by the competition. We need a temporary reprieve. So to characterize it as enforcement, I think, uh, uh, made matters worse. <clears throat> the very next business day, the Chinese government filed a formal complaint in the WTO, uh, alleging that the evidentiary thresholds in the US law were inconsistent with US obligations under China's WTO accession protocol, and that the law as such violated China's rights as a WTO member. Ultimately, the WTO found in favor of the United States or rejected China's claims, basically. So was imposition of the tire uh, tariffs, did it it violate U.S. law? No. Uh, Did it violate U.S. WTO obligations? No. Uh, Was it protectionist? Yes. Was it provocative? Yes. Uh, Immediately after losing the case in the WTO in in, in 2010, China imposed anti-dumping and countervailing duties on US exports of of chicken broilers, which raised suspicions that the measures were retaliatory. Now even if they were retaliatory, they were not ad hoc. Uh, The chicken duties were the product of Chinese anti-dumping and countervailing duty investigations, uh, which were uh, were launched when the WTO decision on tires was pending. So all WTO members are permitted to have and to use these so-called trade remedy laws, the anti-dumping and countervailing duty laws, as long as they comport with certain WTO guidelines. So alleging uh, that China's administration of the laws violated those WTO commitments, the United States brought a case uh, formally challenging China's imposition of duties on chickens uh, just this last September. So a decision from the WTO is probably not going to be forthcoming for at least another year. But a similar U.S. challenge of a Chinese anti-dumping measure on uh, a product called uh, grain-oriented electrical steel is expected next month. So I, don't, I think, uh, unless memory fails, <coughs> that ch- Chinese application or administration of its anti-dumping and countervailing duty laws has not uh, been impugned by the WTO yet. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. Uh, at about the same time that the, uh, that, the, that the U.S. WTO challenge on chicken broilers was happening, U.S. producers of solar panels brought anti-dumping and countervailing duty cases against Chinese producers, which further ratcheted up the the tensions. Now, it's important to keep in mind that these cases are brought by industry, not government. So one should resist the temptation to read too much into policy changes by the filing of anti-dumping and countervailing duty cases. But this particular industry, the solar industry, uh, has been a darling of the Obama administration. And the implication that the Chinese producers benefit from Chinese government largesse while U.S. producers get no such consideration from their government has been an important cause of rising frictions lately. Uh, To be sure, just after the U.S. International Trade Commission issued its preliminary ruling uh, to proceed with the solar panel's case, China imposed anti-dumping and countervailing duties on certain U.S. automobiles. Now, those measures stemmed from the investigation, another investigation that began uh, in the wake of the tire tariffs in uh, 2009, but were never made official uh, until just after the solar panels decision came down in 2011. So that hiatus uh, raised new questions and suspicions that the Chinese were engaging in retaliation. Now, it's pretty tough to avoid the conclusion that the automobile duties were not retaliatory. Uh, but plausible deniability exists in the fact that the Chinese AD and CVD laws do not require duties to be imposed immediately after an investigation, as they are here in the United States. They are allowed to, to hold back for a period of time. So, so as not to leave you with the, the impression that I am excusing China's behavior, where I am impugning our own uh, government's behavior, uh, there is little doubt that certain other Chinese policies would not muster uh, – would not pass muster at the WTO. China's so-called indigenous innovation policies, forced technology transfer requirements, and rare, uh, uh, rare, rare earth mineral export restrictions, uh, as examples, are all legitimate concerns that might warrant WTO challenges by the United States and, and other members. In fact, the U.S. recently, encouraged by a, a victory in a case involving Chinese raw material export restrictions, uh, brought a case against uh, rare earths, and that case was just brought, I think, last month. So I applaud and support that effort, uh, resolving disputes through the WTO as opposed to taking unilateral action, which is often considered uh, in these, this building, uh, makes, is the proper way to address trade frictions. Uh, it's a sign of a maturing relationship. Uh, so far, the United States has brought 13 cases against China in the WTO, Uh, And China has brought six against the United States. Now, I draw distinctions between enforcement uh, efforts geared toward opening closed markets and and protectionist measures designed to close opened markets. Uh, But media tend to conflate them. And in the process, they obscure important aspects of the U.S.-China economic relationship. U.S.-WTO challenges of protectionist Chinese policies are not equivalent economically or morally uh, to U.S. anti-dumping measures, imposed on Chinese imports. The first is about opening markets, and I'm in favor of that. The second is about closing markets, and I'm opposed to that. The first is about enforcement. The second is about resorting to exceptions uh, to the rules of a liberal, non-discriminatory trade regime. On par, China's list of protectionist policies may uh, be longer and more egregious uh, than the U.S. list, but, but U.S. policies and attitudes are very much fueling the increasing tensions. For example, uh, President Obama's creation of this new interagency trade enforcement center may win him more points uh, with unions and import competing industries, but it adds a lot of fuel to the fire. Uh, That new unit is already in the process of being captured by interests that would love to see U.S.-China trade ground to a halt. There's pressure coming from Congress uh, on that unit to self-initiate anti-dumping and countervailing duty cases against Chinese auto parts producers. The government under the law can uh, self-initiate these cases, but uh, I don't know the last time that has happened. Uh, I've been following any dumping since the late 80s, and I don't think there's been a self-initiation in in that whole time. So that, would, to me, would be a substantial ratcheting up of the problem. Um, Likewise, the ongoing Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations uh, have been pitched by the administration uh, as a tool to check China's rise. it's part of the pivot toward Asia. The, the TPP was first embraced by the State Department, well before the U.S. Trade Representative's Office got interested in it. So there is a foreign policy security dimension to it that I think um, the rhetoric of which um, creates adds to the adds to the tensions. What about the hypocrisy of of w, the WTO case on Chinese subsidies to the solar industry? <clears throat> uh, Hasn't this administration done the same with solar, with windmill, with lithium-ion batteries, with automobiles, with auto parts, with banks? Likewise, the president frequently cites China in the context of being our chief rival in a zero-sum game. Uh, We have to win the future. We have to get there before the Chinese. What about the constant media misreporting that China's market is closed? China's market is much more open than any other developing countries and more open than a lot of OECD countries. Um, so that it's, – it's, it's, a, it's a mischaracterization which is extremely misleading. What about the emerging U.S. cybersecurity agenda, which holds as a chief presumption Chinese malintent? Uh, Chinese telecom component producers uh, have been allegedly been warned uh, – ha- have been excluded from making investments in the United States. U.S. telecom carriers have been advised not to purchase parts from Chinese component producers lest they jeopardize their access to the U.S. procurement market. If that's true, this has huge implications for the relationship and for trade in general. Finally, what about our incongruous, punitive U.S. trade remedies policy toward China? When China joined the WTO in 2001, again, another exception, we, they agreed to allow the United States to treat it as a non-market economy for 15 years. Under the non-market economy methodology, a Chinese exporter's prices in the U.S. and China are not compared. What's compared is the, the, that exporter's price in the United States to some fictitious benchmark, which is supposed to approximate the price what the price would be if China were not, uh, if China were a market economy. Um, we have to graduate them by 2016. Uh, we should do it now. Um, it's it's a dwindling asset, uh, and uh, you know the fact that we haven't done it lends credence to the rumors that we're hearing that the U.S. government is uh, thinking about reneging on its commitment to graduate China uh, to to market economy status in 2016. So let me uh, conclude by saying there is no question that certain Chinese policies have been discriminatory and provocative and that the U.S. government has been right to challenge those policies, both formally and informally. Uh, But Washington has also made some poor choices that have and will continue to fuel bilateral disputes Washington has the tools to prevent uh, relations from spinning out of control, but so far, politicians seem more interested in making political hay out of the situation than in containing the potentially significant economic damage. Uh, With America's preeminence in innovation and entrepreneurship still intact, the United States is situated at the top of the global value chain. But the rest of the world is not sitting still. The key to staying on top, in my opinion, is to adopt and maintain smart policies. We're falling behind in that regard. Uh, The rule of law here is no longer bedrock. The business and political climates remain uncertain. Uh, New regulations take effect every day uh, at a faster pace than ever before in history. Uh, Asset expropriation through torts and bankruptcy is a real threat. The workforce doesn't have the skills required by producers in an economy at the technological fore. Compliance costs are eating into the bottom lines of more and more companies. The corporate tax rate is highest among, in the United States, highest among OECD countries keeps resources offshore. Uh, the government treats our investors as adversaries, physical infrastructures in disrepair. And while the smarter governments around the world are wooing investment in R&D uh, facilities, high-end manufacturing plants, and educated human beings, uh, US policies treat those investors and skilled immigrants with contempt or indifference. But our problem is all China's fault. The most significant determinant of the quality and direction of the U.S.-China relationship is American self-confidence. If our economy starts to grow at a stronger pace and businesses begin to invest and hire more rigorously, the temptation of U.S. policymakers and their supplicants in the media to scapegoat China for self-induced domestic woes will diminish. Uh, Defending U.S. interests in the realm of international trade rules, I believe, is a legitimate obligation of U.S. officials. But failure to avert a trade war would constitute perhaps the worst dereliction of that duty. So rather than saber rattle uh, over arguably discriminatory Chinese trade policies, US officials should be looking for actions, gestures, or even changes in tone that could help reduce the bilateral frictions. I've mentioned a few possible olive branches. Perhaps we'll hear more from Aaron. Thank you.
2: And with that teaser. <laughs> um, I'm Aaron Ennis. I'm Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Council. Um, you may not all know who the U.S.-China Business Council is, so let me give you just a really brief overview of who we are so you understand the perspective that we bring to this discussion. We represent about 240 U.S. companies that are doing business with China. Um, it's about half manufacturing, half services. Um, we've got companies that are making product in China and shipping it to the United States, companies that make product in the United States and ship it to China. And, but the majority of our companies actually are making and selling products within China for China's market. And that's particularly true of the services industry where you make and sell it where the product is delivered. But from that perspective, our companies have actually been doing business in China, the majority of them, for over 20 years. So the perspective that we bring is a long one. This is not a short-term market for our companies. It is a place where companies feel the growth is going to happen. And the data that's coming out of that market, particularly through the global recession, is proving them right on this. It was one of the few bright spots for most American companies throughout the global recession, and it continues to be an area of growth. Now, that said... There is no denying that there are significant challenges that US companies face in their dealings with China. Uh, You could talk to any company who's doing business there, and they will tell you probably a list of issues that they have. And it ranges from intellectual property rights problems to market access restrictions to restrictions on um, how standards are set, or they can get a license for their product, all the way down to when and how a company can invest in China's market. But to keep that in perspective, keep in mind that China is a $200 billion, it's with a B, billion-dollar market for US companies. And that means that it's important to companies not only because of the state of the global market and the potential growth opportunities there, but also because the globalization operations of these companies are supporting jobs here at home. Companies um, that sell products in China have to support those with their home corporations here. And their headquarters staff increase. They, They service the products. Many of our companies will tell us, even though they both make a product in China and export it to the United States and make products in the US and ship it to China, the reality is that on balance within their own companies, they are net exporters to China. So this relationship, as Dan pointed out, is extremely complex. But I think we should also, as Dan pointed out, keep in mind that there is progress being made on some of these challenges in the market. Um, it is slow and incremental, um, particularly when you're watching things from Capitol Hill. I think it is probably frustratingly slow, a lot like watching grass grow sometimes. Um, but. What it requires if you're going to make progress on these issues is to have well-coordinated messaging and that messaging needs to be not just the U.S. government or the U.S. Congress or U.S. companies speaking about issues, but actually across the multilateral agenda. What I'd like to do is give you an example of one issue where we've seen this kind of incremental progress and how it happened to give you that example of how you can see other issues being resolved as well. So the example I want to use is one that Dan already mentioned, indigenous innovation. It is a mouthful. I think it's um, probably one of the worst translations of Chinese to English that that I've heard, and I have to say it a lot. Uh, But um, for those of you who have not been following Chinese innovation policy, Um, Back in 2006, China came up with a very large national policy saying how it wanted its economy to innovate. Um, Like any country, uh, China wanted to move away from being just the manufacturer and assembler from the world, and they want their economy to become a dynamic, modern one. And so the policy set out in 2006 set out some very basic guidelines. In 2009, the central government began a policy to implement that at the national level. It had been happening at the provincial level, and we'd begun to see some discriminatory policies in some of the pro- provinces and local governments in terms of how they treated domestic um, companies versus foreign companies on innovation issues. But in 2009, China issued what was referred to as a, a catalog of indigenous innovation products and what, what the standards would be. The standards that were included in this policy um, included two main concerns. The first one was that it required a product to be originally registered with their patent in China. second one was that it required those products to be have an originally registered Chinese trademark. And the benefit that you got from all of these policies was that you had preferential access to China's government procurement market. Now, these are all really arcane issues for most of us on a day-to-day basis, but keep in mind how large China's procurement market is, and you'll get some perspective on why it's important to companies. Um, kind of if you think beyond the fact that China, obviously, is a centrally-run government, but think down to the fact that, not only are the ministries at the central government level buying products, but provincial governments buy products. Provincial governments run hospitals. They run schools. Um, Each one of those need computers. They need copiers. They need software to run on the computers. They need pencils for people to be able to write, or pens. You name it. Um, Those products are probably being bought by a Chinese government entity, and it's not just at that national level. It's all the way throughout the Chinese economy. So, The requirements that China put in place on its face perhaps might have promoted some sort of innovation, but if you dug down a little bit deeper, it was clear that these policies were frankly just keeping foreign companies out of the market. Now, how do you know that based on these two policies? So the two main requirements, originally registered Chinese patent and an originally registered Chinese trademark. For an originally registered Chinese patent, there are probably some foreign companies that have registered patents in China. Companies register their patents all over the world. Innovation is done globally throughout all kinds of centers. And so there might be some products that would have made that mark. But the originally registered Chinese trademark effectively excludes any foreign company from that market. Um, A US company that's doing business in China most likely was a US company registered before they were registered in China. And so the combination of these policies, the patent and the trademark requirements, plus this benefit that had access to a significant market, raised significant alarm bells, not just for US industry, but for European companies, for Indian companies, Korean, Japanese companies. The way that we all went about trying to address this was twofold. First, we talked with our own governments and explained what the problems were and identified where we thought the problems were in the policies. And then we started talking to our colleagues around the world. When you have that unified message, when you can point out that a policy, frankly, is not just discriminatory, but frankly, not in line with global best practices for innovation and that it is a universally held view, then you have a better chance of being able to point out to China on its own and to those within China's government that policy changes are needed. I'm going to come back to that point of, how you get that um, that change in China um, in a minute. But let me continue the story of indigenous innovation. So over the course of 2010 and 2011, US industry, the US government, and in conjunction with our counterparts in the European Union, Canada, Japan, Korea, and elsewhere, push back on these policies. Uh, the first thing that we did uh, was try to make it clear that universally no one opposes China's right to innovate. That's every economy's goal in the world, and we all want to provide good jobs to not only our citizens, but have that wealth come back to our economies. But the key was that the approach that China was taking was one that is not one that promotes innovation. Think about what that policy benefit is. China's innovation policies said that if you got on a list, so your product was deemed to be innovative, then you got a government procurement preference. So how frequently was the list updated? Well, provinces that we checked who had had these policies in place since 2006, some of them had never updated their list since 2006. And we're now at this point in 2010, so four years later. So imagine the computer that you owned five years ago. Do you think that computer's innovative now? The price has come down. They're faster now. They're slimmer now. The same problem exists with any sort of a product. If you're trying to promote innovation and innovative products, putting something on a list and then never requiring it to compete again, um, is an initial benefit to the company who might have had something innovative. But as that list re- goes, cr- becomes more stale, all you've done is create market access to a product that, as each year goes by, is no longer innovative. So you're not promoting the innovation that was actually at the outset of your policy goals. So what we next did was then try to identify where the links were in Chinese policies. Now, those of you who work on Capitol Hill, I'm sure, will not be surprised to know that all laws in almost every um, country are extremely complex. There's a lot of them. They overlap. And the same thing goes for China's innovation policies. At the council, we identified about 20 separate policies that had specific links identifying that innovation policy benefits to a foreign company that would have to be dismantled for China's innovation policy truly to be non-discriminatory. And then we started trying to identify the priorities on them, again, in conjunction with our colleagues in the US government and with governments around the world. And we started seeing progress on it. So this policy change started in November of 2009, By July of 2010, when the Strategic and Economic Dialogue met, the big bilateral meeting for the U.S. and China, China announced that it was restating its um, policy from its own WTO accession that technology transfer was not required to invest in China. So getting at that idea that you had to have an originally registered Chinese patent and trademark and affirming that they would uphold their WTO commitments on this area. Several months later, in December of 2010, at the next big bilateral meeting between the U.S. and China, the Joint Commission on Commerce and Trade, China announced its commitment to remove the requirement of location and ownership in its indigenous innovation policy, so further breaking that link of the requirements of having to have your products originally made in China. By January of the next year, when President Hu Jintao visited the United States, he personally committed to eliminate all links between China's innovation policies and its government procurement policies, so starting down that road of eliminating the one benefit that the policies were giving. By May of last year, at the next meeting of the Strategic and Economic Dialogue, China committed to eliminate its innovation catalog, so getting rid of this arcane me- method of naming a product that then never has to be updated, identifying, recognizing that progress, if, to be innovative, you don't need a list. By November of last year, the State Council, China's equivalent of the Cabinet, which oversees all of their ministries in China issued a directive to provincial and local governments that they, too, had to sever that link between indigenous innovation policies and government procurement policies. To date, we've seen 22 uh, provinces and 22 sub-provincial governments, so large cities and some of the local governments, have actually complied with this, leaving about another 15 provinces still to go. The takeaway from all of this is there's still work to do. Breaking this link between innovation and procurement policy won't resolve all of the problems that companies have on China's innovation policies, but it's an important first step, and it lays the groundwork for being able to make further progress on these issues. And um, kind of given the fact that it's taken us two and a half years, you can kind of see how this does actually end up taking a great deal of time. Now, our view is that this model can be used for progress in other areas as well. The key is that you have to be able to clearly define what the problem is to be able to identify what the possible solutions are rather than allowing the rhetoric to take the lead on it, much of what Dan was talking about, kind of blaming China for these issues. The issue on an indigenous innovation wasn't that we don't want China to innovate. The issue is that the policies that they were implementing were ones that were not going to allow China's economy to innovate and were, frankly, discriminatory. Some of the examples of areas where we think that some incremental progress can continue to be made in 2012 and that would show meaningful progress to companies in terms of their market access in China's uh, in China's economy are China's domestic content rules. So back to procurement. Again, keeping in mind this is a massive market for companies. But in 2010, China um, issued a draft law that... Um, appears to provide equal treatment to goods and services produced in China by domestic and foreign entities, regardless of what their ownership is. These measures have to be modified. There are some additional carve-outs that we think are necessary to reflect how markets work for things like information technology products where it's very difficult to identify where something is made or created. But with those changes, those that policy could actually show some meaningful difference for U.S. companies trying to sell in China's market. And it actually is included in China's Ministry of Finance, which oversees the procurement policies of China, in their 2012 work plan. So China has already teed it up as an issue that they want to make some progress on. The opportunity is ripe for us to take advantage of it. The second issue where we think that some progress could be made this year is on intellectual property rights protection. Um, The U.S. has taken China to the WTO twice on various aspects of its intellectual property protection regime. And one of the cases that we won was a bit of a wash. Um, The the, the WTO um, argued that the U.S. was right on some aspects, but, uh, but... needed further evidence of the other, and that the one area that seemed to be somewhat gray in that determination was whether China's policies created a criminal deterrent. Now, we can parse words all we want here on this, but it's very clear that there's no criminal deterrent in China's market. It's among the reasons why, particularly for DVDs and CDs, which can be rapidly produced in mass quantities and brought to market, the the piracy rate is so high in that market. But if China were to induce a criminal penalty, so that if you were producing CDs of a scale where it's very clear that you're going to be selling them, hundred or more, let's say, since as many, many of us have a lot of friends, but at the same time, you're probably not burning a hundred CDs for them. That level could make meaningful progress for the audiovisual industries and the music industries, where that deterrent is not happening right now. And that's the kind of issue that is very tangible, and that enforcement could work. Now, China made some progress in 2011 on intellectual property rights. They are famous for having um, short-term enforcement campaigns that really have seen some results during the short periods that they're being implemented. Last year, we advocated that China make these campaigns permanent, and near the end of last year, they did just that. China's State Council announced a working group that would work solely on intellectual property rights uh, protection and that cut across all of its ministries. So bringing to power that cabinet-level administrative agency across the board. And that leading group is the one that has the opportunity to make these kinds of changes and force the enforcement. So in 2012, another good area where we might be able to potentially see some incremental progress, but one that would be meaningful for companies. The last one is one that, um, given that we're on Capitol Hill, I will trust I have enough trade walks to love this issue to transparency. Um, <laughs> the The issue of transparency is one that is really, I think, kind of rote for us here in the United States. It is a given that we know that laws and regulations are going to be issued for public comment for at least 30 days before they're implemented, and that kind of... Um, regularity in the market gives companies the ability to be able to anticipate where changes are coming in the market for them so that their business model can be adjusted as necessary, but also to comment on areas where the policies may not meet what the objectives were. China's policy technically requires laws and regulations to be issued for public comment. But based on our research, what we found is that about 60% of drafts have been issued by state council ministries, so the main level folks, but less than half of them were issued for 30 days. That means that companies might know, they have a little over 50% chance of knowing that a regulation's coming out, but they only have a very short period of time to respond to them. Some of the laws that we've submitted comments on have been released on a Saturday and two weeks later on a Saturday when it's due. Clearly, that's not really sufficient time for large companies to fully understand what the impact of a policy change might be. But given that the State Council does have the authority on this issue, this is another area where if the U.S. were to fully engage China and seek progress on things like mandating that ministries issue these laws and regulations for 30 days before they are implemented could mean a significant difference for U.S. companies. Some of the issues that are a little less specific, but I think are still vital for discussion between the US and China in 2012, particularly uh, for foreign investment, are the investment barriers. Uh, Dan alluded to this, but especially in the services sector, China continues to require many companies to be in joint ventures, meaning that you have to have a Chinese partner to be able to access the market. But the U.S. government statistics um, suggest that actually in the services um, area that only 8% of sales from U.S. companies manufacturing overseas are coming back. So this is to the United States market. So we're not even really talking about issues of allowing companies to invest more in China having an impact here at home. These are actually companies that are trying to access China. China's market more effectively. China issued last year um, its updated catalog that tells you where foreign companies can invest. But the, the final issue that came out made very few changes to where foreign companies can invest, despite the fact that China has had some very prominent commitments that they want to open up their services sector in particular. There are nearly 100 investment restrictions in key sectors in China's market, and these are areas that while it's a little broader and a little less easy to be specific on, it's important that we continue to try to press China to open their market more fully, because that's what's going to allow their economy to continue to grow in the future. It also has direct links to some of the issues that I think um, many of us hear a lot about, but may not have the full context on, like technology transfer, If your company is required to be in a 50-50 joint venture, so you can only own 50% of the company, but a Chinese company owns half of it, that has significant implications if you're required to have technology registered in China for that company. Now, if you could have a wholly foreign-owned company, you can own 100% of the company's operations in China, that would be a very different matter because you'd be transferring it to an arm of your own company. So seeking reductions in these um, investment caps for industries could make significant difference on other areas where our companies are seeing challenges in China's market. Um, Before I close, I wanted to touch on two other things. Um, One is I think we should keep in perspective that um, this is not just a one-way conversation when the United States and China get together. In a couple of weeks, they will meet for the 2012 meeting of the Strategic and Economic Dialogue, and China will have its own list of concerns about what's going on in the U.S. market. Some of them are ones where I think um, there is no argument that the U.S. economy continues to be the most, e- or among the most, I should say, economies in the world to foreign investment. But China's companies do have some legitimate concerns, and ones that I think um, they, we have an obligation to make sure that our economy continues to act in the ways that we talk about it. One of the main complaints that we know that the Chinese will most likely raise, and that's actually being raised today in the investment forum between the U.S. and China that's being held over at the Treasury Department, has to do with um, reviews of foreign investment in China. It's done through um, a process called CFIUS, the Council Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, which requires that investments over a certain percentage for a merger and acquisition require government approval. These are the cases that Dan mentioned where there have been some denials of technology investments in the United States. The reality of investing in the United States is mergers and acquisitions are only one way that you can do business here. You could have a greenfield investment and create a new plant, and that would not require any sort of investment and approval. Or you could have a minority investment in a company, and that likely would not trigger a CFIUS review as well. But these are the issues where the high-profile cases that have gone on have raised a lot of concerns in Chinese companies that are interested in investing here and creating jobs here, but that they feel that the market is not open to them. Now, on that sense, I think we should look to where U.S. governors are going because, frankly, you can't uh, open a paper and not find some governor doing a trade mission to China seeking both investment in their own state as well as sales for their companies. But that's the kind of um, deep-level dive we need to be doing to explain the market more fully to, to Chinese companies interested in investing here. China also has concerns about U.S. export controls, and on this one, all I can tell you is I think that every government in the world has the right to protect their national security, but at the same time, we do need to be cognizant that U.S. export controls do need to be reviewed in the context that not all governments in the world restrict the sales of certain products to China. Um, The U.S. government right now is reviewing these policies. We should be realistic about how much of restrictions will be lifted on products going to China. Most likely not significant enough to make a significant dent in the U.S. trade deficit. But at the same time, we should be rationalizing that list to make sure that U.S. companies who are selling legitimate goods that that competitors are selling into China like high-speed desktop computers shouldn't be restricted from selling those products to China. And the restriction should be kept on the ones that truly are of concern and that have national security implications. Finally, I think, as Dan mentioned, there's no denying that U.S. trade remedies are going to be on the agenda for any discussion between the United States and China. And I think that... um, the Congress's action several years ago to allow the instatement of countervailing duties on non market economies like China will continue to get attention uh, from the Chinese government. Ultimately, as Dan pointed out, this issue is going to be remedied when China is treated as a market economy, because the only difference between um, how a a market economy and a non-market economy is treated under anti-dumping laws has to do with those third-country numbers that Dan mentioned. And when we start using Chinese data, it'll be like any other anti-dumping and countervailing duty application. But until then, I think it's going to be an irritant, and it's one that I suspect we should uh, will see China challenging the new policy as well at the WTO to see if. WTO agrees that it actually complies with what the rules are. Finally, I wanted to come back to the point that I had mentioned about how you build constituencies within China's government. This week in particular, we've seen some evidence of the fact that there's a lot going on in Chinese politics, Uh, but there is significant debate going on within China's government about further economic reforms, and including the role of things like state-owned enterprises and allowing more private capital into sectors that are currently earmarked for state-owned enterprises. And reform of, of an economy means very many different things to different people in Chinese economy. But at the same time, that debate is going on, and we do have allies within China's government. So on issues like indigenous innovation, where we can point out that there are best practices for innovation that China can learn from rather than repeating the mistakes of other governments, or where there are greater openings and greater competition can benefit China's economy... Those are the people that we should be making sure that we're getting those messages in the hand of because that's where the reform is going to come from. We need to arm our allies within the government to ensure that the reform goes in the right direction. And with that, I will close.